would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7, where we'll be looking at verse 53 of that chapter on through verse 11 of chapter 8. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, what wonderful promises you make to your covenant people throughout the pages of Scripture. Promises that we can claim as our own, for you are unchangeable. You are good, and you are trustworthy in your nature. As we gather on these Sunday evenings, as your called-out chosen people, give us eyes to see and ears to hear again and again the good news of the gospel, the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, the calling as your people to live in faithfulness, to live in worship and in love towards the one who has laid down his life, raised again, ascended, and is ruling and reigning on high, continuing to mediate for the people for whom you have purchased with your shed blood, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. In John seven fifty three, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now, you know, you'll notice at the top of this section, as an editorial comment, your uh, copies in English will say something along the lines of that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 11. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I feel that this is an important thing to spend a few moments addressing this evening. So what does this particular editorial comment mean? Well, it means simply that some of the most ancient copies that would be closest in terms of chronology to the original that John wrote, those that are considered, because of that proximity to the original, are considered to be the most reliable And this account of the woman caught in adultery does not appear. Now, most biblical scholars seem to agree that this was an incident that occurred in the life of Christ, not written by John, but rather attached to Western manuscripts by the early church. 
But because we can't know this for certain, most Bible commentators aren't really sure what to do with this narrative. They don't want to ignore it completely, and so they typically add it as an appendix to their commentary. But here are a few things to consider as we think about including this particular narrative in John's gospel. First, I think it really fits the context of John's gospel. Here is a woman who is in moral and spiritual darkness, as of course are the scribes and Pharisees, and finds the light of Christ, the light of Jesus himself. And so verse 12, which follows, of course, immediately after this narrative, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And really, we could say this is a theological summary of the woman's experience who is rescued from darkness because Jesus, the light of the world, has redeemed her. Second thought in considering its inclusion here in John is the character of Jesus captured in the narrative is completely consistent with the Christ we find throughout the Gospels. He is a Savior who has come not to condemn, as we read in John 3, but to redeem. He is the Lord full of mercy and forgiveness, even toward the one who is the most grievous of sinners. And so in places like Luke chapter 7, there is a woman of ill repute who comes to the feet of Jesus, washes his feet with her tears, dries them with her hair, and anoints those feet, finding literally at the feet of Jesus forgiveness at his grace extended to her. In John chapter 4, he engages the Samaritan woman at the well, a woman who has a questionable past, and she too is shown mercy. We read of Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners, sinners being those who in the eyes of the public would be considered the worst in society. But these are the ones that Jesus shows mercy and compassion toward while calling for repentance. When Jesus declares this woman to be free from condemnation, as he does elsewhere, he is displaying an authority and a prerogative that belongs to him alone. When he exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, as he does again in other places, he shows himself to be the sovereign Lord who knows the motives and the intents of men's hearts. And so Jesus' words and actions here in John 8 are completely in line with the character of Jesus as we find him throughout the Gospels. A third thing to consider for the inclusion of this text in John's Gospel is the way in which the scribes and the Pharisees act here in John 8. That their behavior is also consistent with their character displayed elsewhere. They care more about their own regulations than they do about the soul of a sinner. We'll see this more later, but in a sermon by Rick Phillips, he points out, if they were witnesses to this adulterous act, that means they could have prevented it from happening. But they do not care at all for the law of God because they are of their father, the devil. John 8, verse 44. Their hatred toward Jesus Their desire to trap him in this misuse of the law is absolutely in character. We find them periodically coming up with schemes, trying to trap Jesus 
as they misuse and mishandle the law of the Lord. And so as we consider what to do with this section of John's gospel, again, it's an incident that I think fits within the context of John's gospel. It's one that certainly fits the character of Jesus and the patterns of the religious leaders. So rather than presume, since we don't know this for certain, that this was a text that was added at a later date, what about the possibility that this was part of John's original manuscript but was actually removed at an early date? I think there are some reasonable explanations as to why this might be the case, although again, we can't be certain about these things. Perhaps it was removed out of fear that some would see this as a license for sexual promiscuity. Perhaps that even happened as a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here in his call to repentance. Perhaps it was removed because of a move toward asceticism or self-denial within the early church. In the end, William Hendrickson makes a helpful comment. He says, our final conclusion then is this, though it cannot be proved that this story formed an integral part of the fourth gospel, neither is it possible to establish the opposite with any degree of finality. Instead of removing this section from the Bible, it should be retained and used for our benefit. So let's do just that this evening. Let's see what we learn here from this text as we use it for our benefit. What do we learn about Jesus's power? What do we learn about his authority and our need for forgiveness from this passage? A passage that teaches us so wonderfully about the gospel of sovereign grace. First, notice that there is a problem which is brought to Jesus. What is the problem that comes to him? We see it in verses 3 and 4. Think about this. Here is a woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery. In fact, they would need to catch her in the act in order to bring charges against her. So when they come to Jesus in verse 5 and ask him, what do you say we should do? They're not asking Jesus to determine whether she is guilty or not. She is guilty. She was caught in the act. That's not the question at hand. But rather, they are coming to him asking about the penalty that should be imposed. What do you think should be done with this guilty woman? And notice that they appeal to the Mosaic law as the basis for these charges of execution. We see that in verse 5. Now, here's the portion of the Mosaic law that they have in mind. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. And so the punishment for adultery is death. And they want to know, Jesus, what do you think about the law? Do you agree with the law, or are you going to cast it aside? And it really is an evil, wicked plot that these men have devised. They think that they have trapped Jesus because they think there are only two options. One is to reject the law by sparing this woman. If he does that, then he would undermine his authority as a teacher. If he says that the law of God is wrong and she should not be condemned, then he will be dismissed as a lawless person and someone who could even be brought up on charges 
for denying the authority of the law, claiming that God's law is not valid. Perhaps this is what they are hoping for. Perhaps they are counting on Jesus' message of love and compassion prevailing and overriding the law, as we read in verse 6, that they might have some charge to bring against him. This is their motive. This is their hateful intent. And so if Jesus dismisses the law, then he is a lawbreaker and they could bring charges against him. His other option, it seems, would be to hold up the divine law and condemn her to death. But then the people surely would no longer come to him as a compassionate and gracious teacher. You can imagine the horror of this woman being stoned to death here in the temple in the midst of the people with Jesus standing, giving approval for that act. Plus, if Jesus says to stone her to death, he would be in violation of Roman law, and they could bring charges against him to the Romans. And so at first, it seems like a marvelous trap. It seems as though in their wicked and hateful intent toward Jesus that they have created this lose-lose situation for him. It seems as though he is stuck between the divine law of God and the life of this woman. If he condemns her, he lacks compassion, he loses public appeal, he gets himself into trouble with the Romans. If he says that she should be set free, then he dismisses the law of God given through Moses. And we know that as early as John chapter 5, there was hatred toward Jesus because of his denial of the Sabbath, at least the perceived denial of the Sabbath, and the fact that Jesus is claiming equality with the Father There is murderous rage and intense on the part of those religious leaders and authorities, a hatred that simply continues to grow throughout John's gospel as this book unfolds before us. In fact, in John chapter 6, or 7 rather, there is this plot to simply go and seize Jesus, but that opportunity falls apart for it is not yet his time. And so now here, They come up, perhaps taking even months to plan and put together this particular scheme, putting together this plot, giving them an opportunity to have legal charges to bring against Jesus. So that's the problem. This is the situation that is brought to Jesus, a woman caught in sin, brought with the intent of trapping Jesus in this moral dilemma. Well, second, notice next the way in which Jesus masterfully exposes their hatred. We could call this Jesus' sovereign control, which reveals a hateful heart. Now, this really is a despicable act. And by that, I mean the murderous rage and anger of these men. These are scribes. These are Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the community who are to have such piety, such holiness of life, such love for the law of God that they are to be examples to the covenant community in which they live. And yet they have such hatred toward the Son of God that they see no problem in casting this woman before Jesus in order to use her as a pawn in their evil plan. You can picture the scene. Jesus is here, perhaps from the early morning hours, teaching in the temple. 
The crowds are eager to learn. All eyes and ears are attentive to the words of the most masterful teacher who has ever lived. And then bursting through the crowd comes a group of men who are recognized immediately as religious authorities. They have rage in their eyes. Their fists are clenched in anger. Their voices are raised with outrage of what they have found in the midst of their own community. The woman, probably a married woman, an adulterer, is dragged in front of the crowd. Clothes tattered, perhaps still loosely clutched to her body. Eyes filled with tears. Shame. Embarrassment. Fear. Anger. Remorse. And they press Jesus. What do you say should be done with her? Give us an answer. What do you say? And Jesus masterfully diffuses this tension by not even replying, but by bending down and writing or drawing with his finger in the dirt. Now, obviously, we have no idea what Jesus writes in the dirt. There are all sorts of ideas on what he writes a portion of the law that applies to this particular situation. As one who knows their hearts and their murderous intent, perhaps their own individual sins. It's impossible to know what he writes, and so we don't want to become preoccupied with that. But in his refusal to give an immediate answer, you can see these men getting more and more agitated. They have come for a definitive answer. There is no question as to her guilt They press Jesus for an answer. You know what the law of Moses commands. What do you say? What do you say? And finally, Jesus stands and he responds in verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, we know that all of the words of our Savior are masterful. But in these few words, you have wisdom. You have truth. You have love, you have compassion, and you have a sovereign understanding of the hearts of these wicked men. As we look at what Jesus says here in verse 7, it's important, I think, to notice what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that she is innocent. He is not saying that the law of God no longer has relevance. He is not saying that adultery is no big deal and that we should all just be progressive people and happy for her that she is ahead of her time, living an enlightened life of free expression. He is not creating a new ethic in which any behavior goes, nor is he holding up some new form of judicial ruling in which only those who are perfect adherents to the law at every point are in a position to judge. He does not mean that from now on it is only a perfect person who can judge another. Nor is he saying that we can use our bodies in whatever manner of sexual expression we might choose. We hear this rhetoric a lot today, don't we? Especially in the realm of sexual identity. As Westerners, we love to say that we can live any way that we want to live. Our lifestyle is our own choice. And if you tell me that I'm wrong, you are judgmental because you have sin in your own life. Even Jesus doesn't judge, we are told. Who are you to judge me? But that's simply not what Jesus is saying here. So what does he mean? Well, when he says, let he who is without sin be the first to cast a stone, 
he is actually referring to another requirement from the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, among other places, the one who bore witness against another who was condemned of a capital crime must be the first to begin that process of execution. And so if someone was found guilty as a result of your testimony against him, you must be the first to pick up that stone and begin that process of executing the death penalty. Now, that alone must have been a huge deterrent in preventing anyone from bearing false witness against another. And further, there were very strict requirements necessary to bring condemnation. First of all, the law of Moses stipulates that there must be a trial before condemning someone. But instead, they bring this woman out in public humiliation, ready to condemn her already without any process of trial. It's simply a lynch mob. Even more, the law stated that someone could never be found guilty based upon the testimony of one witness alone. The law required at least two or three witnesses. And those witnesses must be in perfect agreement with one another when they themselves are essentially put on trial. If there was any detail that varied, then that person could not be condemned. And so two eyewitnesses might agree on how the crime was committed, what was stolen, even things like what the accused was wearing at the time. But if they disagreed on the time of day in which the crime was committed, then the person could not be condemned. There's actually been a record of an ancient case that was dismissed because the witnesses could not agree on the type of tree that the crime was committed under. So how could this woman be guilty of adultery? Well, she had to be caught by at least two witnesses. And how is that possible unless she was trapped, unless she was set up? Because where's the man? The Old Testament law that we read from earlier prescribes that both the man and the woman be punished. There was no double standard, which is clearly what they are taking upon themselves. And so the fact that they come with the woman only not only proves that there is entrapment, at the very least, they're allowing the man to get away and for her to take the fall. At worst, the man who is equally culpable is part of the plot trapping this woman in order to accuse Jesus. But the law goes even further. In bringing charges against another, the law was very careful in addressing the motives of the accuser. And so my testimony would be rendered invalid if I am acting from a motivation of self-preservation. The key here in the law is that the accuser must not be a participant in the crime itself. You cannot be a guilty accomplice to a crime while also testifying against someone else who's committing that crime. You see, I might witness you stealing a man's cow, but if I witness it because I'm holding the gate open, then my testimony would be rendered invalid. I cannot judge because my motive is self-preservation. And so Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the law maker who came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law, gives a response to these men that is actually more consistent with the law than they are. 
their testimony should be rendered invalid because they allowed, perhaps even caused this crime to be committed. Their testimony should be dismissed because they have no love for God. They have no love toward one who is in sin, but in fact they have hatred toward the covenant God. Their testimony should be disregarded because they are in no position to cast the stone of judgment upon the woman, but they want Jesus to condemn her instead. And his response brings at least a level of conviction to their hypocrisy. He shows that he knows their murderous intent. And it's at the words of Jesus that they are struck at the heart. But the frightening thing of this passage is that there is no hatred of their sin. There is no humility or acknowledgement of what they have done. There is no humble contrition before the Lord. There is only shame that they have been caught in their hypocrisy. This is really a remarkable thing that brings me great comfort. All of their plotting, all of their scheming, all of this murderous rage that has been building and building again for potentially months up to this particular point, all of that hatred is destroyed in a single moment by a few words from the lips of our Lord. When we look at the world around us and we see corrupt, arrogant, hateful words of those who have nothing but contempt for the law of God, it can get pretty discouraging, can't it? But the comfort and the hope that is ours is that when our Savior comes, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, every mouth will be silenced. The arrogant will be dismissed. And those who are in Christ Jesus will be vindicated. And so then Jesus returns to write on the ground as he allows his words to rest and to have the effectual purpose for which he intends. And they begin to leave one by one, the oldest first. Perhaps because it was the plan of the younger men to trap the woman, the woman. and the older men know that they were not witnesses, and so they leave first, feeling the conviction. Perhaps it's because the older men are more quickly to recognize their failure to uphold the law of God. Not necessarily quicker to see their guilt, but at least quicker to see their hypocrisy. But one by one, they leave in silence because they are all guilty of misusing the law of God. They are filled with hatred, filled with only murderous rage. Adultery is wrong, and Jesus never says that this woman can live whatever way that she wants, and you cannot judge her. But they are unqualified to be witnesses because of their participation in the offense, because of their own misuse of the law of God and because of their own hatred toward the Lord's anointed. And third, notice the comfort of the gospel. Notice the comfort of the gospel and the call to change. And you see, it's the comfort of the gospel and the call for change that can never be separated from one another and can never be put in a different order. You see, if the woman had told the woman, or Jesus had told the woman, everyone else has left, why don't you go ahead and leave for a while? Think about fixing yourself first and then come back and we'll talk. And she wouldn't have found the grace of Christ. 
If Jesus instead had told her, you are free, go live your individual life of self-expression, thank you for being such an example of empowerment. In 2,000 years from now, people will laud you as a great example to be followed, and she would remain condemned as a guilty sinner. Instead, when her accusers leave, he stands up, and perhaps for the first time, he looks into her eyes, and he says, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. She finds the grace of the Savior. She finds the compassion and love of God and the kindness that is shown to her is meant to lead her to repentance. The comfort of Jesus' words call her to true and lasting repentance. Jesus doesn't say that she's an innocent victim. Even if she was trapped, she was still guilty. He tells her to go and sin no more because she clearly was a sinner caught in adultery. There's a huge difference between saying, you are innocent, go ahead and live whatever way you want, versus you are guilty, but I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. And this is the essence of the gospel. This is at the heart of the comfort of God's word. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took the judgment of death that she deserved when he went to the cross. He took our condemnation and our punishment We are still sinners, but in Christ we are not condemned. We are no longer judged as guilty. The holy law of God is upheld. God's justice is satisfied. Jesus must die in order for us to be forgiven. And now that amazing grace that has been shown to us calls us to a life of repentance, a life of change. And this gospel comfort calling for a life of change is something that we read throughout the book of 1 John. For example, chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In chapter 3, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Later in chapter 3, verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In chapter 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Chapter 5, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And you see, in speaking of repentance, the larger catechism says that a sinner, by a work of sovereign grace, has a sight and a sense of the danger of his sin. He understands the filthiness and the odious nature of that sin. He has an apprehension of the mercy of God shown to him in Christ Jesus. And because of all of that, he grieves over his sin. He longs to turn from it and endeavors to walk in newness of life. We are all sinners deserving of condemnation. And yet if we are in union with Christ Jesus, 
and no longer under condemnation. We are called to live no longer under the dominion of sin, but there must be a growth, we could say, of hatred within our hearts towards that sin that dwells within. This is the comfort and the call for change that Jesus extends to the woman caught in adultery. So how should this account of the woman affect the way that we live? Well, just briefly, a few things. First, we should always heed the warning of judgment. See, when we think of the two categories of people who are here as Jesus speaks to them, those who hear the authoritative words of Jesus, there is, of course, the adulterous woman who finds grace and who receives with joy the words of Jesus and the call to repentance. But then there are the religious leaders who have every opportunity to repent, repent of their anger and repent of their hardness of heart. But instead, they turn from the Lord of glory and they remain under the wrath of God in their own self-righteousness. Now, the tension that we ourselves might feel in a text like this is a tension between the demands of the law and the love of God. And it's that tension that is ultimately resolved in the cross of Jesus Christ. In a sense, those religious leaders are right that the law demands death. They are right to presume that Jesus is full of love and compassion. But the reason they think that they can trap Jesus is because they do not see a way to resolve this tension. But the resolution is in the cross. The resolution between the holiness of God and the love of God is in the justifying work of our Savior. It is there in the cross that the holy nature of our God is preserved. And the love of God for his own chosen people compels him to send his only begotten son into this world. Those religious leaders and experts of the law should have known Psalm 85 verse 10 steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other, ultimately in the cross. And second, if we heed that warning of judgment, that warning of judgment that this text holds out to us, then we have the amazing comfort of forgiveness. If Jesus extends forgiveness and grace to this adulterous woman, then there is hope for us. If her sin is here on display before the entire world, yet she is not condemned, then you can come to him for forgiveness. And this comfort of forgiveness can enable us to take responsibility for our own sin. There is no place for blame shifting. There is no need for qualified excuses. But you can acknowledge that sin freely. And you can name it specifically and find freedom from that condemnation in Jesus alone. You don't need to hide from your sin. You can come humbly and confess before him. Allow the light of his word to expose the darkness of your own heart and find forgiveness in Christ alone. And the freedom of condemnation will drive out any fear of judgment If you are not condemned, 
then you have nothing to fear on that day of judgment. Instead, it's your accusers who will be driven away. And it is his word of vindication that will prevail. And finally, this gospel of sovereign grace that frees us from condemnation is the same gospel that calls us to a life of transformation, a life of obedience, a life in which all sin should be despised. If grace is renewing grace, if grace is transforming grace, if we are new creatures in Christ Jesus, then our calling is to live as a redeemed people. If we are forgiven, then we are called to go and no longer live that life of self-indulgence. The forgiveness of Christ Jesus necessitates a life of repentance. We could call this the gospel demand for holiness of life. What a wonderful, merciful, gracious Savior we belong to. By His grace, may we be a people filled with such love toward the Savior, such love to the calling that He places upon us, that we would go and sin no more and see that that calling is a calling of love that has been shown to us. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you for the wonder and for the marvel of the gospel, that you know our sins, that you know our hearts better than we know ourselves. We thank you for the light of your word and pray that that illuminating work of the Spirit would continue to show us the sin that resides within, that we would grow in hatred toward it, that we would desire to find the forgiveness in Christ alone that we would be a people who long to show forgiveness and patience toward others as we grow to understand how much we have been forgiven, that we would be a people who see the call to holiness of life as a delight, as a joy, that we would see the commands of our God to us as not a burden, but as life itself. For it is through the work of our Savior that we are enabled to even have an understanding and an apprehension of these things. And it's in the name of that wonderful Savior that we pray. Amen.